turn your Bible, please, to uh, Mark chapter 14. Uh, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read um, the institution of the Lord's Supper from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 um, to 25. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he gave given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it, or they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we approach your word together this morning. As we approach your table again together this morning, we ask that you would undertake for us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Impress these truths on our hearts of all that Christ has accomplished for us. Lord, help us to, to, to remember the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Help us to remember his resurrection and help us, Lord, to anticipate his return. Lord, we pray that you would help each one of us to preach, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're now into our third week of a one-week message about the Lord's Supper as we transition into our practice of taking the Lord's Supper uh, every week. Well, if you remember the first week, I, I focused on your preparation and examination for the Lord's Supper. In order to partake, you must prepare yourself spiritually. I also spoke about how you need to examine yourself to make sure that you're not walking in unrepentant sin, especially that you are not partaking without due consideration of Christ and His church. And then last week we focused on the commemoration and the participation in the Lord's Supper, that we are remembering all that Christ has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. But remember, this is more than a mere memorial. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are also participating in the body and the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And this is not a physical participation with the physical Christ in the heresy of transubstantiation that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but this is a, a real spiritual blessing as Christ himself is spiritually present in this ordinance. Well, this morning we're going to continue to focus on the Lord's Supper as we look at the celebration in the Lord's Supper and anticipation in the Lord's Supper. As I mentioned to the kids, it, it might seem strange to you that I would use a term like celebrate as we remember what is the most horrific, wicked, and unjust event that has ever taken place in all of human history. The Lord Jesus Christ 
God incarnate, rejected by the Jews and handed over to the Romans to be nailed to a cross to suffer excruciating physical pain. This was not just about human history. This wasn't just about the wrath of the Jews and the wrath of the Romans against Jesus. The Father, God the Father, poured out His holy and just wrath on His holy and just Son, causing Christ to cry out, A lie, a lie, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 27, 46. Puritan John Flavel explains that so upon Christ answerably there was not only an impression of wrath but also a, sub a subtraction or withdrawing of all sensible favor and love. Or as John Calvin says it, he bore the weight of divine severity since he was stricken and afflicted by God's hand and experienced all the signs of a wrathful and avenging God. As we're told in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so as we celebrate, the focus of our celebration is the suffering of the sinless Son of God. We need to be conscious of what happened. We need, con we need to be conscious, yes, of Christ's physical suffering. We also need to be conscious of the Father's wrath poured out on Christ for our sins. Now, as we look at this, we have the, the hindsight of history. This is a well-attested fact. But infinitely more than what history tells us, we have this history recorded in Holy Scripture to tell us what happened and to tell us the implications of what happened. God's Word, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and clear, tells us what happened on the cross and why. Now, there are many, many verses that I could quote to discuss this here, but let's just look at a few. Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 8.3 For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. One more, Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is called penal substitution. 
Christ suffered and died on the cross as our substitute. He was punished on the cross in the place of his people, the elect. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7 And this is why we celebrate. This is why we celebrate. Before we can understand the, the goodness of the good news, though, we need to understand the badness of the bad news. Paul carefully lays this out for us in, in the book of Romans. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. The, the Apostle Paul goes in from, from all the way from Romans chapter 118 all the way to, to chapter 320, talking about the badness of the bad news. He's saying that Jew and Gentile alike are under the just wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Everyone, the whole human race, is under the just condemnation of the holy God. But then in, in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, we have what is arguably the, the, the most important paragraph that has ever been written down. Romans 3, 21 to 26, let me read it for you. But now... In light of all the bad news that has come before, in light of all the condemnation of, of, of everyone, in light of that, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Can you yawn? In light of those truths. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the holy God. Who laid down his life. So that you can have life. This is the gospel. And this is why we celebrate. If you can tune out to this, if you can just ho-hum these truths, this shows the hardness of your heart. You need to ask God's forgiveness that he would reveal to you. Maybe you've never known this. Maybe you've never known the new life that you can receive in Christ. 
You need to ask that God would open your eyes to the spiritual realities of the just condemnation that you are under. And beg Him for forgiveness. But maybe you're even here this morning as a believer. As somebody who's experienced this. As somebody who knows these truths. Has your heart become so cold and dead that you cannot rejoice, you cannot celebrate around what Christ has done for you. May God have mercy. May God have mercy on us all. Into the reality of our guilt before the holy God, Paul inserts the words, but now. But now, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this the great turning point in God's dealings with the human race. Paul uses three metaphors here to, to refer to what Christ has accomplished for us. He uses the word justification. This is the imagery from a law court. This is a legal term that, that means not guilty. That you and I, though guilty, can be proclaimed not guilty. He uses the word redemption. This is the imagery from, from a slave market. As a, a slave was, was redeemed or, or bought back. You and I have been slaves to sin and we have been redeemed. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. He, he uses the word propitiation. This is the imagery. It speaks of a, a sacrifice that turns away wrath. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the sacrifice that turns away the wrath of the Holy God that you and I deserve. This is why we celebrate. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. He, he talks about the, the bad news again before proclaiming the good news. Please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, he, he, he says that, look, this is you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the air. That's Satan. You were, you were once carrying out the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body. You were, you were by nature the children of wrath. This was you and me. You weren't just sick. You were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. You weren't just naughty. You, you were a rebel following the world, following Satan. You didn't just made, make bad choices. You were in bondage to the flesh. You weren't just childish. You were by nature a child of wrath. And I've said this before, but, but prior to coming to Christ, you had more in common with Charles Manson, Adolf Hitler, and Judas Iscariot than you did with the weakest and most immature Christian. 
In Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he, he gravely warned the congregation. He said, the bow of God's wrath is bent, the arrow made ready on the string. Justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. That's the bad news. But then in verses 4 to 7 come the good news. The, this turning point, this, the, again, these two words that make all the difference. But God. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. He was declaring that he had accomplished everything that the cov covenant of works required. He had done everything necessary to earn the salvation of the elect. Not only had he obeyed perfectly, but he became the sin bearer. He bore the sins of his people on the cross. Yes, Christ has done everything necessary to earn your salvation. And so, yes, you are saved by works, by Christ's works. All of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament, all pointed ahead to the New Covenant in Christ's blood. As Jesus gave the wine to his disciples to drink, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And elsewhere it says, for the forgiveness of sins. So that, that arrow of God's wrath that Jonathan Edwards was speaking of, what God did was turn the arrow, or turn the bow around and aim the arrow of his wrath at the heart of his son. Of his son. For your sins and for my sins. But brothers and sisters, this is no funeral. When we gather together around the Lord's table, we are not at a funeral. This is a celebration. People celebrate all kinds of things, birthdays and weddings and graduations, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But nothing, absolutely nothing compares to what we celebrate in the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. So again, the Bible reveals what happened on the cross and reveals the implications of what happened on the cross, but it also reveals what happens next. We know what happened that Friday. But we also know what happened on that Sunday. On that Friday, there seemed to be little to celebrate, but on that Friday, we know what news Sunday brought. Listen to the words of, of S.M. Lockridge, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego from 1953 to 1993. You may be familiar with this. 
It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. The Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved, but they don't know it's only Friday and Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday, hope has lost, death is won, sin is conquered, and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, a rock is rolled into his place, but it's Friday, it's only Friday, and Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral. Yes, Christ suffered and died on the cross, but don't judge the story by the middle. Christ rose again on the first day of the week. That Sunday was the first Lord's day. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 4.25 The resurrection was proof that the Father was satisfied with the Son's atoning work on the cross. It was proof that the Son was indeed righteous. The resurrection is a vital part of our, of our salvation. We celebrate a risen Savior. And we celebrate an ascended Savior too. After 40 days of ministry among the disciples, Jesus ascended to the Father and He is there now. At this very moment, Jesus is at the throne of God and at this very moment, He is interceding for you. That's why we celebrate. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's death was not permanent. And Christ's death was not in vain. That's why we celebrate. I want you to think for a moment. Think about the most horrible thing that has ever happened to you. Maybe it's happening right now. Maybe it's a tragedy. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's in your life for the life of a loved one. Maybe it's a sin that you committed or a sin that someone committed against you. Now bear with me. 
I'm not trying to stir up trouble or, or inflict pain on you. But now imagine that someone asked you to rejoice in that event. Imagine if someone told you, I know that that caused you pain, great pain. But you have to rejoice in it. Maybe you'd be shocked. Maybe you'd be horrified. Maybe you'd be outraged. Shock, horror, and outrage would probably be the most common response to such a suggestion. How on earth could you rejoice in something that has caused you so much pain? But here's the thing. God is commanding you to rejoice in it. God is commanding you to rejoice in that event and in every event in life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's not rejoice when things are going great. It's not rejoice even when things are going okay. It's rejoice always. And you can't separate that from the command to pray without ceasing. And that can't be separated from giving thanks in all circumstances. Because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now that this there likely refers to all of it. To the rejoicing always. To praying without ceasing. And to giving thanks in all circumstance. That, that all of this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So let me return to the question that I asked you a moment ago. How on earth... Could you rejoice in something that has caused you so much pain? Well, here's the key. The answer isn't on earth. The problem with the way that most people try to deal with the difficult events in life is by focusing on earth and by focusing on themselves and by those around them, on their, their earthly circumstances. They, they look at themselves. I don't deserve this. I can't handle this. I'm going to do something about this. Or they look at others. How dare he? After all I have done for her. He is so wicked. The people look at their own pain and they look at what others have done to them. Even Christians tend to default to this kind of thinking. They interpret their circumstances through themselves and others. And God is often, in these situations, a mere afterthought and often tied to the question, how can God do this to me? Well, I submit to you that that, that kind of thinking, although natural, is backwards. It's backwards. Again, the answer isn't on earth. It's in heaven. The answer is in heaven because of who is in heaven. You can rejoice always. You can pray without ceasing. You can give thanks in all circumstances because of God. So strive to put God at the center of your focus. Interpret all of life through a Godward lens. 
Before you think about yourself, before you think about your others in those circumstances, think of who God is. Question eight of the Baptist Catechism says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. With, with your mind focused on those things, of who God is in those things, it changes your perspective. Now, it does not necessarily change your circumstances, but it changes your experience of your circumstances. Consider the attributes of God, especially his, his sovereignty, His wisdom, and His love. And then again, with God at the center of your focus, now begin to look at what's happening in your life. Consider all of life in light of Him. Well, where do you see God's attributes most powerfully displayed? In the gospel. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you see all of God's holiness, his justice, his, his wrath, his righteousness, as he pours out his wrath on his son, but you also see his love and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness, all of God's attributes meet at the cross. And so interpret life in light of the gospel. And where do you see the gospel most powerfully displayed? In the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity every week to, to be able to, to celebrate what God has done for us and to be able to, to reinterpret our lives in the light of that fact. Now, you do not have to wait. And I hope you don't wait until... Sunday until the Lord's Supper to celebrate all that Christ has done for you. I, I hope you do that every single day. But the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day is the, the crowning celebration of our week. In fact, Sunday isn't the weekend, right? Sunday isn't the weekend. Sunday is the beginning of the week. So, so when, you, when we gather together as, as God's people to, to celebrate what he has done for us on the first day of the week, we're having an opportunity to, to calibrate our thinking for the coming week, to prepare our hearts for, for what's coming. Because now, when you walk out of here, you're, you're walking into the world. You're going to encounter worldly family members, worldly neighbors, worldly co-workers, worldly drivers. But you also take yourself with you. You take yourself with you. And so, so by calibrating your thinking according to what God has done for you on the cross and celebrating these things in the gospel, you have an opportunity now to set the direction of your week. So we gather together for corporate worship, praying, and singing, attending to the, the, the proclamation of God's word. And, but, and our service though rises to a crescendo as we gather together around the Lord's table. Again, the Lord's Supper is a highlight of what we do as we gather together as the Lord's people on the Lord's day. The Lord's Supper preaches to us. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As Augustine declared, the Lord's Supper is a visible word. As Sinclair Ferguson asserts, paraphrasing Robert Bruce, we may get the same Christ better with a firmer grasp of his grace through seeing, touching, feeling, and tasting, as well as hearing. So we don't judge the crucifixion by the middle. Don't judge your suffering by the middle either. Look at all that God has accomplished for you through Christ's suffering. And as you follow in Christ's footsteps, he will accomplish his glory and your good through your sufferings too. He will use your suffering to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ, Romans 8, 28 and 29. He will use your suffering to help you, to help others, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. But that's not all that he's going to do. When you, understand, when you understand your life in light of who God is, especially in light of the gospel, you can rejoice always. You, you can pray without ceasing. You can give thanks in all circumstances if you understand that, it is, that this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And even your hard circumstances are God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so you can rejoice as you celebrate the gospel. Well, finally, as we look at our, our last point in our studies here on the Lord's Supper, we're going to continue the anticipation. Again, we've been focusing so far on, on the moment of celebration. Celebrating what has happened. What Christ has done for us. As we, we gather together then around, around the Lord's table, we're looking at the past, at what, at what Christ has accomplished for us. And we're also focusing on the present at what is happening in this very moment, but that is not all we're doing. We're also looking forwards to the return of Christ. I quoted 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 a few moments ago. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time you do this, every time you gather together around the Lord's table, you're preaching. You're preaching. I'm not the only one preaching here. You are preaching. We're all preaching. We're preaching to one another. We're, we're, we're preaching to those here who, who need encouragement. We're preaching to those here who, who, who need a reminder of the hope that they have in Christ. You're preaching to people who have been beat up by the world through the course of the week and beat up by temptation and sin. You're preaching to people who, who, who need the encouragement of the gospel. You're also preaching to people who are walking in unrepentant sin. You're preaching to even to unbelievers who are here in our midst. You're preaching the Lord's death until He comes. Now do you see the promise that, that's embedded here? Until He comes. Until Christ comes, until Christ returns to take us to be with him forever, when we gather together as, Lord, as the Lord's people, Lord willing, every Lord's day, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're telling people, 
We're telling ourselves that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, died on the cross for our sins. He was raised on the third day and that he's ascended to the Father and that he is going to return. What a glorious privilege. What a blessed hope. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We encourage each other with these words, and we encourage each other with the Lord's Supper. Christ is coming back to bring us home. Jesus promised this to his disciples at that first Lord's Supper. We said, as we read earlier in, in, in Mark, Mark 22, 24, or sorry, Mark 16, 14, 24, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying that he's not going to drink any more of this, this wine until, until the marriage supper of the Lamb. This promise wasn't just for apostles. Think about what Christ was promising you, saints. You are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And one day, you are going to drink with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the completion, the fulfillment of God's kingdom. The, this theme of the, the kingdom of God is, is present throughout the scriptures. Adolf Saphir says that there is scarcely any book of scripture which is not prophetic. The Psalms, even the historical books, are full of prophecies concerning the messianic kingdom. And he says the summary of the whole scripture revelation from Genesis to the apocalypse reveals the purpose, the hidden meaning, and the final consummation of all history. Christ's kingdom is one of the most prominent themes in the Gospels. It's mentioned 49 times in, in Matthew alone. John the Baptist proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In preparation for Christ's ministry, Matthew 3, 2. And then Jesus himself proclaimed the same message at the outset of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In, in Matthew 4, 3. And then Jesus traveled throughout Israel, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what then is the kingdom of God? Well, it's his, it's his rule and his reign. Remember from my series on the, the model prayer where we're told to pray your kingdom come, I explained that, that, uh, that there are th really three aspects of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of providence, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of glory, the kingdom of providence is, is God's sovereign rule over all things. The kingdom of grace is his, his rule in the hearts of his people. And the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of glory is, is the consummation of all things. And so it's in this context, when we, when we speak of the kingdom of God, we're referring to the kingdom of glory. When Christ returns to reign. And so in this, we're, we're in the midst of the, the already, not yet. 
Christ has already inaugurated his kingdom in his incarnation, but he has not yet fulfilled all that it entails. He will fulfill that at his return. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus taught explicitly, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Luke 17, 21. So Jesus, is, as John MacArthur explains, embodied and demonstrated the kingdom. The kingdom was near because the king was there. The 1644 uh, confession, Baptist Confession of Faith defines the kingdom like this. This kingdom shall then be fully perfected when he shall the second time come in glory to reign among his saints and to be admired of all them which does believe and he shall put down all rule and authority under his feet that the glory of the Father may be full and perfectly manifested in his Son and the glory of the Father and the Son in all his members. So Christ bids us to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We need to, to pray for Christ's return. May, may we be among those who love his appearing. 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul pray, prays for Christ's return in, in 1 Corinthians 16.22 and in Revelation 22.7 and 12 and 20. The Lord Jesus says, I am coming. And John replies, Amen, Come, Lord Jesus. So in the, the, the second last verse of the Bible, John is praying for the return of Christ. Is that your prayer? You're praying, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Earlier I asked you to consider what is the most difficult thing that has ever happened to you. Well, for many of us here, that thing is yet to come. We live in a fallen world. Sin and its effects are all around us. And things in our culture are not getting any better. We, we, we pray week by week for the persecuted church, and who knows how long it will be before that's us. But even if persecution doesn't happen in, in our lifetime or that of our children or our, our grandchildren, we will all face trials. It's part of the package of, of living in a fallen world. We will face the death of loved ones. And if the Lord tarries, we will face our own death. And those trials that, that we think about might even happen this very week. As you go through your week, you're going to face trials. You're going to face temptations. You're going to face challenges. You're going to face obstacles. You're going to face grief. You're going to face pain. So tomorrow you're going to wake up and say, it's Monday. You say, but Sunday's coming. It's Monday, but Sunday's coming. It's Tuesday, but Sunday's coming. It's Wednesday, but Sunday's coming. Hope you get the picture. Maybe you will face family trials. Maybe you will face employment trials or health trials or sin trials or, or persecution trials this week or next week or sometime in the future. 
But don't forget how the story ends. Don't judge the story by the middle. The Lord's day is coming, and that is a massive blessing for in the life of the believer. But it's not just the Lord's day that's coming. The day of the Lord is coming too. The Lord's Supper is a precious reminder that the Lord reigns and that He will return to rule and reign fully and completely. In the Lord's Supper, we have, we have come making preparation, having, having through the Holy Spirit directed examination, we've examined our hearts. We've considered the, the bread and the cup all that's involved in the, in the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. Remembering the sufferings of Christ, not just for us individually, but for us corporately as the body of Christ. But even more than that, we're involved in participation, both individually and corporately. As Christ is spiritually present in the table, we are spiritually participating with Christ in these elements. Being strengthened with the benefits of the cross being nourished in our fellowship with Christ. So we have come together to celebrate, to celebrate all that Christ has accomplished for us in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And so there is a, a looking inwards at ourselves. But there's also looking around at our brothers and sisters. But ultimately there's a looking upwards at Christ. Similarly, there's a looking backwards at all that Christ has accomplished for us. There's also a focus in the present, in this moment as we celebrate together, but there's also a looking forwards, anticipating our being gathered together with Christ for all eternity. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, says the celebration of the Lord's Supper involves sacred time in three distinct ways. First, it looks to the past, instructing the believers to remember and to show forth Christ's death by this observance. Second, it focuses on the present moment of celebration of which Christ meets his, with his people to nurture them and to strengthen them in their sanctification. Third, it looks to the future, to the certain hope of their reunion with Christ in heaven when they will participate in the banquet feast of the, of the Lamb and his bride. And so the Lord's Supper then is an appetizer it's an appetizer for what's coming. It's an appetizer for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now to those who do not have a wedding garment, to those who have, have not been, been washed clean by the blood of Christ and been dressed in His righteousness, there will be weep, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll be cast out into these things if you are walking in unrepentant sin, if you are not a believer, this supper is not for you. And the call to you is to repent, to return to Christ. One day we will hear what John heard in the book of Revelation. We will hear what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God reigns. 
The Lord God, our, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Brothers and sisters, let's celebrate with great anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for all that you have accomplished for us. Fully loving your heavenly Father, loving your neighbor as yourself, completely, perfectly sinless. Yet, Lord, on the cross, as you became the sin bearer, you did not just name, bear the sins of the nameless, faceless mass of humanity, but you bore our sins. Lord, the sins of your elect, the sins of your bride. Lord Jesus, as you suffered on that cross for our sins, you were fulfilling the righteousness of God. You were fulfilling his just and holy wrath the just and holy wrath that we deserved. For Lord Jesus, you have taken that in our place. We praise you, Lord, that death could not keep you down. Three days later, you rose from the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over the grave. To show that the Father was satisfied with your sacrifice for our sins. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have ascended to the Father and that you are interceding for us even now at this very moment as we gather together around the Lord's table. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would impress these things on our hearts so that by your grace and for your glory, we will discern the body of Christ as we celebrate together in the fullness of all that that means, understanding all that Christ has accomplished, but also understanding all that Christ has accomplished for us as his people. Holy Spirit, help us as we examine ourselves to turn away from every known sin and then to celebrate the newness of life that we have received in Christ. Amen.